And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge, The Battle for Bakhmut. Why is it that the Ukrainians are so desperate to hang on to this city? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. This is kind of like you know, the morning after the day before kind of story. This initial one that I'm going to talk about, that, of course, was the Prime Minister last night, Justin Trudeau, announcing in a, um, a statement and a kind of brief news conference why he was choosing a certain route to look into the question of election interference. There have been many calls for him to have a full-blown public inquiry. But he's rejected that idea all along, but he was clearly pressured into saying something, and so last night he announced this special rapporteur who would look into the election interference story, and he would, or she, would decide whether or not there should be a public inquiry. The special rapporteur would do that, not the prime minister. The special rapporteur appointed by the prime minister to decide whether there should be a public inquiry. Special rapporteur. I'm sure the proper definition of that term is is more important than it sounds. A special rapporteur sounds like, oh, that's the person who sits at the side of the room when others are doing all the work and writes down what they're doing. I mean, that's... That's kind of like what a special rapporteur sounds like. But that's apparently not what it is. So now the prime minister and his office have to find this person who is completely kind of bulletproof in terms of criticism. This person can't look like they're in the pocket of the PMO, even though the PMO will appoint this person. Can't have any kind of political taint to them. Can't be, you know, like a former cabinet minister or a former MP. You know, unless, of course, there's somebody from one of the other parties. Which is, you know, possible, I guess. Could be some former Tory cabinet minister. Could be a former judge. You know, governor general. It's going to be interesting to see how they determine who that is. And as my friend Rob Russo said on the air last night, obviously they don't have anybody yet or they would have announced it yesterday. They've given themselves a few more days to find that person. And whenever that happens, you know, what you want to hear is, well, how many people said no? <laughs> you know, I'm not touching this. Is it what the opposition leader called a cover-up? Just another layer of cover on this story before we get an eventual answer, if ever? Or is it real? So that's what today's going to be about. There's going to be a lot of people coming out of the woodwork, whether it's opposition leaders or university professors or you know, various analysts of different kinds, they're going to all have their take. So we're going to watch that carefully throughout this day. And then tomorrow on Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, Bruce and I will 
we'll talk about it as well as a few other things. There has been an enormous amount of pressure on the government to do something on this. Canadians are worried they concede that. Canadians want to believe the system is fair and just and accurate and can't be tampered with to the point where elections can be determined by outside influence, not internal voting. So we'll talk about that tomorrow. But Tuesdays, as you know, Tuesdays are Brian Stewart days. Brian talks the Ukraine story and has done in a fabulous way over the last year and will continue on. So um, let's bring him in. Let's have our conversation on the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, more than a year old now. Here we go with uh, my friend, your friend, war correspondent, foreign correspondent, Brian Stewart. So, Brian, I'm checking my Axios feed, the Axios News Service feed, and they had an interesting story last week that dealt with how Americans in particular are following the war in Ukraine. And the headline is, Americans grow numb as war in Ukraine drags on past the one-year mark. Now, some of this was expected. Some of this we talked about last year. Mm-hmm. And you can see, you know, how, how interest, you know, had dropped by the middle of last year. But they're into another drop now. And I wonder, as somebody who's covered, you know, lengthy stalemate conflict situations uh, over the years, what this tells you and what, how we should react to it. Well, yes, I think, Peter, some of this is anticipated. Uh, You know, people have a lot of worries in their lives right now, a lot of other concerns, and keeping up with uh, what's going on in Central Europe, even so fundamental a fight as this, can sometimes seem a distraction to them. But I also think it comes down to a couple of other things. I mean, since the Cold War, America has trickled back a bit towards isolationism again. I mean, Trump certainly pumped that uh, flag heavily. And, um, you know, the kind of the parties that used to be so united on foreign affairs aren't as united now. But I also think there's another aspect to this. And I think I think Biden has not been selling the American position steadily enough. And he's getting criticism from some Democrats on this whole very matter that he does. a Suddenly he'll do a, a trip to Europe and he'll be in the news for two, three days. But he doesn't keep up a steady message. Uh, and he's this sort of back and forth attitude that the U.S. government takes that, oh, no, we're not going to okay that weapon. Well, maybe we will after all. Yes, now maybe we will give it, but it'll take a year to go. As I think a lot of people in the public wondering, you know, do they know what they're doing? And B, uh, is it that relevant to me? They don't seem to be very rushed. They don't seem to think that Ukraine needs the big weapons now. Why should it be our priority? So I think there's there's a mix message. There's a at times a weak message in the United States. It's much stronger in Britain, by the way, than it is uh, in the United States. Um, and I think that's that's uh, a good part of it. But also, one has to remember that isolationism has strong roots in America, and it, it doesn't take much to make it flourish again when it sees an opportunity. 
But I would add, bottom line, this to one aspect. I wouldn't expect support in Congress to collapse at all anytime soon. The reality is a lot of Republicans are even more hawkish than the Democrats and are attacking Biden now for not having done enough soon enough with enough serious material. So we still have a consensus in Congress in elected United States backing the war. And uh, I think that's going to certainly see out the next, well, to the next election, perhaps. Um, there's no data on how Canadians are, are, are reacting to the uh, continuation, um, you know, into a second year of this conflict. But we keep in mind a couple of things. One, um, there are a lot of Ukrainian Canadians uh, who are focused on this issue and trying to ensure that their governments uh, are focused on it as well. Um, a much higher percentage of uh, Ukrainian Canadians than Ukrainian Americans, uh, and we should keep that in mind. The other thing is, too, there's there's been no evidence, at least on the part of this podcast. Now, we're not a newscast, um, and, and so the daily news is, is one thing, but people, our listeners, have grown used to the fact that you're with us on Tuesdays. We talk about this issue from any number of uh, different angles uh, that we can, and the audiences have not dropped at all in more than a year uh, since we started this, which is really, you know, is quite interesting. A tribute, obviously, uh, to you and the way you've been uh, kind of filling filling us in on this. But, uh, you know, the audiences have, in fact, gone up, um, you know, over the year, and they've maintained that level now into this second year. So let's get to some of the issues that uh, uh, we're looking at this week. And one is, is the battle for Bakhmut. And, and you know, it's an interesting story because you kind of wonder why the Ukrainians are putting up such a fight for this. Nobody thinks they can win that particular city. Um, but they are in it, and they're, they're not leaving. They're, they've had opportunities to back away. They haven't. Why? Indeed, and I, I think uh, there's some indication the Pentagon were urging the Ukrainians to pull out of Bakhmut some weeks ago, saying, get out while the going is good. But the Ukrainians are, if anyone's not up with the news, they're sticking in there, even though they've only got one line of supply going in now. And there's a real uh, possibility that they could be uh, encircled and, and cut off. Um, once you keep it in perspective, Bakhmut's right in the center of the center, central front. There were two other Russian offensives underway, one in Luhansk to the north and one in Bolodar to the south. Both of those offensives were basically turned back. They, what we, they say in the military business, culminated. The uh, the Russians essentially ran out of steam after suffering enormously high casualties. Bakhmut is the central one, and that's the one that obviously is most on. Uh, Putin's mind, the Kremlin's mind, and then several generals' mind, they must get it for the sake of Russian prestige. So for seven months, they have poured an attack after attack after attack. And really, it's the most extraordinary story because if they win Bakhmud, they don't really win that much. Uh, and the Ukrainians are saying, wait a minute, you know, we can still fight on there. And by fighting on, Rather than just escaping to fight at another uh, front further back, further to the west, we achieve several objectives. Every day they stay and fight degrades Russia more. They're losing an estimated six or seven to one in casualties. So Russia loses more every single day. Every day that Russia 
fails, having said it's about to attack, to to capture Bakhmut and fails, it loses in reputation and, and cost, enormous cost in manpower and material and, and morale. And also, every day they're fighting there, they are basically... The Ukrainians fix the Russians. That's a military term, meaning they pin them down in that one spot. That means all these so-called elite units or or Wagner group uh, commandos aren't able to fight in other fronts. They're stuck fighting for Bakhmud, even though they seem at times to be losing their spirit. And a very important factor here. Our military blogger, mill blogs, I think they're called in, in Russia. These are these very pro-war, uh, usually right-wing military analysts that are very popular in Russia. They have big audiences. And uh, and they're starting to see in the battle for Bakhmud that this invasion is not nearly as easy as we thought it was going to be. When we were promoting this invasion, we didn't think it would be taking seven months to take really a no-account city, a backmud, barely 70,000 people. It's just barely a city, uh, which has no real strategic uh, advantage, and we can't seem to take it because the Ukrainians are fighting so fiercely. What happens if we take backmud and then we face hundreds of other backwoods ahead of us? You know, is it going to be one more of these fights after another? This is a tremendously important message that the Ukrainians want the Russians to be picking up. And staying there, even at great risk, um, really achieves that. Several real military analysts in Russia now are saying they're worried. One of them is uh, Kordakovsky, who's a very well-known uh, uh, militia leader as well as Neil Blogger, has said that he now worries that even if they take back more they won't have enough, they will have culminated, they won't have enough strength to face the Ukrainian offensive when it comes, which is expected within the next month. So that's why Ukraine's staying in there. I wouldn't be too surprised to see them slip out one night uh, very skillfully, the same way the Russians, to give them credit, rather skillfully uh, snuck off uh, in the southern front when it fell uh, about a couple of months ago. So I, I think they might still, but I think they'll do a, a fighting withdrawal, which is, you know, block by block, house by house, make the Russians pay for every single square acre, uh, hectare of the place. And then, you know, as the Russians keep bombing and so not bombing so much as shelling every building into rubble, the rubble creates more and more hiding places for the Ukrainians to fight from, more defensive positions. It's a terrible environment fighting in cities. All right, let me back you up a little minute because you you talked a few moments ago about the uh, the Wagner group, the uh, kind of private army group militia that uh, uh, is fighting uh, on the Russian side uh, and was supposed to be uh, one that was going to take hold quickly of situations that the Russian army couldn't have. Well, as you say, they haven't in Bakhmut, and you also gave us a hint that their their morale. The Wagner group, their morale is down. What do you know about in, that? Yeah, in a way, they're not hiding it because they're 
Prigozhin, the the uh, multimillionaire head of it all, is very vocal in his complaints. He's saying, look, you sent the, our Wagner group in uh, to fight, and we're the best fighters. We do fight much better than your regular army, as you know. And uh, we did all this fighting, but now they're telling us they don't have ammunition, to the artillery, to back us up. Uh, now the fighting's getting harder and harder, and we're getting less and less artillery support. We're beginning or at least I'm beginning to suspect that just possibly Russia has set us up to be the scapegoats if we don't take Bakhmut. If the Ukrainians can hold it and it becomes their kind of mini Stalingrad, really, it's not a good analogy, but uh, I'll take it for the moment, they become a, a big victory signal for the Ukrainians. We'll get blamed, the Wagner group, because we did all the fighting, couldn't break through. We couldn't break through because the Ukrainians are fighting so well, but also because you don't give us enough artillery. So he started criticizing more the regular army, which detests him, you know, he's attacking the head of the Russian uh, Defense Department, um, who obviously detests him, too. So once you get an army that's falling out like this, it really is a is a showing a bad state for both supplies, because they fight over who gets what supplies, but also morale must be uh, really very low. When you're, you're a soldier in the field in one way or another, you're starting to hear your top generals hate each other and are fighting each other. And, but basically, we'd rather be fighting that other general than the Ukrainians, if they could. It's not all that great for already low morale. Uh, There's another fascinating part to this story uh, around Bakhmut, and that is uh, how the Ukrainians are trying to entice the Russians, the, the, you know, the basic level of Russian fighters, to come on over. It's better over here on this side. Now, you know, you, you often hear about this in, in, in times of war, but it's a pretty sophisticated uh, siren call that the, uh, the Ukrainians are using. There are some armies are good at it and some are not good at all. And the Ukrainians are really exceptionally good. Take in mind that the Ukraine, the Russian soldiers on the Eastern Front live in miserable conditions. They're cold, they're muddy trenches, their food is alleged to be even worse than you get in the Russian prison, which is pretty hard to imagine, but that's often claimed. Um, and the, the, what the Ukrainians have been doing is showering the Russian soldiers with various messages. Look, Come on over, surrender. We've got, and they're they're showering menus now on the Russians because we they know they're hungry. So the Russian picks up a leaflet or whatever method it comes in and says, "You surrender to us. We got a full menu for you, lovely hot food." And you know that Ukraine makes the best borscht in the world. Sorry to say it, it's better even than Russian borscht. We make borscht that's better than your mom or grandmother even made it. You just come on over here and you'll get your lovely soup, warm soup, and you'll get on top of that the, the best beef we've raised anywhere in Central Europe. And, you know, we got great sports. We have soccer here. we got basketball. And you can watch TV. You get a room. You get a board and lovely clean sheets. And guess what else? You don't have to pay rent. You don't have to pay maintenance. You just live here. Live off us. And they're, and they're, um, they're telling the Russians to be very careful surrendering because there's a lot of stories out now about Russians trying to surrender being shot 
by their own side. And I think they're pretty valid worries. Um, And they're also sending numbers uh, to Russian soldiers. If you want to come over, call this number, and we will advise you on the safest route to come and how to do it properly. And one other aspect I really quite like, because I always worry about the receptions prisoners get when they come over across the side into another side. Do they get uh, well handled or, in fact, do they disappear? And the, the Ukrainians apparently are offering soldiers, their soldiers, a bonus for the prisoners they bring in, and especially high bonuses, up to up to $500, it's rumored, to bring in a technician or a, an officer. So that's a good incentive I like to see. A whole different kind of war going on there. It is Um, indeed. The um, you know how you know we talked last week about Putin and and some strange moves that he seemed to be making last week, but this week again it follows a couple of days where he's he's looked particularly down in some in some um, moments when he's been in the public eye. Yeah, he looks like a man, clearly, who's got an awful lot of worries on his mind. I mean, Zelensky has a lot of worries, too, maybe even more, but he doesn't always show himself looking fretful and worried. But Putin is really now very alarmed by the number of attacks that are taking place inside Russia. Not just the drones and not just attacks on airfields, which have uh, been growing in number and and, then knocking out some very expensive planes, but also uh, mysterious fires that break out. And then last week, there was allegedly, allegedly by the Russians, uh, rather Russians alleged that there was a mysterious attack on a city, Bryansk region in Western Russia, by a Russian guerrilla volunteer group, the anti, anti-Putin Russian group that operates in Ukraine that came across the border and attacked in Bryansk, well inside Russia. And he would, went in, he addressed the uh, Federal Security, the FSB, the great uh, counter-terrorism, counter-espionage force in Russia, um, and gave it, related on the line that he wants this stopped. He wants the the number one question they should be facing right now is to stop attacks over the Russian border, be they drones or be they any kind of guerrillas coming in across the lines. Uh, and he's wanting to see, they've upped the, the budget in, in um, Russia for the military services, but the special security in military is $150 billion being boosted. Remember, Russia has to protect the largest frontier in the entire world. So this is going to start picking up a lot of Russian manpower, a lot of the defense budget, which is already running, I think it's a third of the entire budget is now on defense and security. So this is going to be another cost of the war. It's also, though, of course, a worry for the Ukrainians because they know the Americans are particularly anxious not to see any attacks across that Russian border because they don't want that to lead to the kind of escalation we all worry about at times. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but there are two other areas I want to get into. One is China and the Ukraine war, and the other is Canada. We'll do that right after this. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, The Bridge on a Tuesday. That means Brian Stewart. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. 
All right, Brian, I want to um, I want to talk about China, which is in the news on so many different fronts right now. But in terms of the Ukraine war, a question has been raised a number of times in this last little while about, A, whether China has been supplying Russia with arms uh, with any effect or whether it could be about to supply Russia with arms. Uh, there have been suggestions from the Chinese themselves that they're considering that possibility. Um, what is your sense on, on that story? Do you think they would do that? And if they did, what difference would it make? Well, I think some supply, not lethal weapons so much, but technology has also has already been going across the border. Um, they, they have a lot of technical skills, the Chinese, and they've been sending apparently navigation gear and uh, jet parts and jamming devices to Russia, very uh, low key. The real question is what Russia is going to need desperately is missiles and artillery uh, shells and the rest of that, and much more simple gear. And whether China will do that or not. If it does do it, I think it's going to try and do it as quietly as possible because it doesn't really want the outcry that will follow. Uh, and I suspect it won't do it because they've got not a lot to gain and an awful lot to lose. Uh, there would be a reaction from the world. They have been warned of that. It'll be a serious reaction for a major cr- trading partner. This would be a trading nation in the world. This would be a big blow. Sanctions would be applied. Um you know, they have Russia as it is now on a junior partner status, but they want to keep it going strong because they want an ally. But, you know, they're they're not unhappy to see a Russia declining in the, to, to some extent and becoming a junior partner rather than the old senior partner it once was. So I don't think they will. Uh, but I must say, the more China comes into the news, the more uh, other nations are reminded, uh, look, Ukraine's vitally important at the moment. It's critical, but we have to be spending more attention on China because it is just building itself militarily up by phenomenal leaps and bounds. I mean, its military budget is $225 billion a year, and that's thought to be an understatement of the budget. It goes up by sometimes 10% every year. And their technology gap, they're, they're starting to open up, is is uh, stupendous in certain areas. They're doing magnificent work on missiles, on fighter planes, and they're becoming more and more determined to face down uh, the outside world, the West, uh, let's say, uh, by, by each passing month, it seems. So... I think, you know, the, the problem with the China thing is not so much weapon, weapons going into Russia. It's the fact that it's going to start, start taking a lot of attention away in Mos- Moscow and, and, and Berlin and, and, and London uh, as they start talking about, you know, we have to start looking to Asia a lot more than we have been for the last year because of Ukraine. You know, conventional, uh, conventional wisdom has been that because... Uh, Russia has clearly been embarrassed by Ukraine in this situation over the last year, that it would make China think twice or back completely off any idea of invading Taiwan. Um, I'm not so sure anymore. I mean, the way the Chinese talk, it doesn't sound like they're any less uh, concerned about trying to bring Taiwan into their fold than they were a year ago. What's your read on that? 
I'm not sure I have a, a very good read on it. I, I do know the Chinese have a are, are extremely skilled at placing problems and challenges down the road a bit. Uh, Taiwan is going to be something they're not addressing right now, but they're preparing for a major war in Asia if it comes. In the meantime, uh, they're doing high-tech development that is scaring them. It blazes out of uh, a lot of the military, uh, Western military. And uh, they can say to themselves, look, four years from now, five years from now, we'll, att- we'll see how the Ukraine-Russia matter uh, turned out. We'll see uh, how d- divided America is again by its electoral system. And it's, uh, it's a tendency to run around being nonsensical at times. And we'll see if Europe has gone back to being as divided as it used to be. Then we will make key decisions regarding Taiwan. But I think they look at... They look at what a defending country can do with high tech, what Ukraine could do against Russia. And they have to think, you know, we ha- we must acknowledge that if we attack Taiwan to bring it to heel, we are going to take heavy casualties because there's no way we can put together an invasion force 140 miles away or something and sail it secretly over without it being running into missiles and all manner of defenses. So I think they take it much more seriously. Well, they do take it seriously, even in statements, but they're doing a lot of serious thinking about it. And they do have a lot of concerns on their hands, just how easy a target that would be. It it seems a yet harder target the more the lessons of Ukraine goes on. All right. Last point is uh, about Canada. Uh, with uh, much fanfare, we announced we were sending uh, a, a number of our Leopard 2 tanks over to Ukraine to help them in the fight. They're desperate for Leopard 2 tanks, one of the best in the world. Um, we sent a, we've sent at least one so far. Um, and there are also indications in the last week or so that the Ukrainians have moved some Leopard 2s into uh, Ukraine uh, for the fight against the Russians. Any indication of whether that's one of the Canadian ones? Not clear. The Canadian uh, government has been, uh, again, traditionally shy about talking about its military uh, gifts and what have you. But yes, we have a a Leopard over there. Whether it went into Ukraine, I don't know, because it may be used for training. Um, But there are at least rumored to be 10 to 12 inside Ukraine. And uh, one of the good things is Canada offering its four. I mentioned this before. In the way they do it now in NATO, they go, one country goes up. We give four. Can you give some? So now Spain, as I predicted they would, has given six. So that means Canada's four, Spain's six comes up to 10. That's one tranche of leopard. And that's a good, that's a good give. That would be very, very effective uh, in the major fighting to come. Uh, And so I think Ukraine is not going to get anything like the number of tanks it wants, but it is going to get a substantial number. Uh, And that's going to, we're going to see how that works out in the spring and in the summer. All right. We're going to leave it there for this week. Brian Stewart with us. And Brian, thanks so much uh, as always for your insight on this conflict. Thank you, Peter. And of course, Brian will join us again next Tuesday on the bridge and look forward to it. All right. Time for, um, time for some end bits. we got two of them today. And, um, you know, I live in a small town, right? In Stratford, Ontario. It's actually a city, 30, 
to 33,000 people. I'm not sure if it's still the case, but in Ontario, it used to be that if you were more than 20,000 people, you were, you were a city, as opposed to a town or a village or what have you. Um, I'm not sure if that's still the case. It certainly is in terms of Stratford, because we are a city, city of Stratford. But like a lot of small communities of that size, something has happened in the local business world. And as I said, like a lot of others, you know, across the country, you may well have noticed it. I haven't seen anything written about this phenomenon that's been happening, and especially happening since the, uh, since the pandemic hit. But I did see this piece just published the other day in the New York Times. I'm not going to read you the headline because I'll give it away right away. So instead, I'm going to read the first, the first few lines. Morgan, Minnesota, a city of about 800 people, has two restaurants, several churches, a grain elevator, and one small grocery store that sells ribeye steaks that, according to the mayor, are the best around. The mayor, Jerry Huris, he's 76, is protective of that lone grocery store, a family business that dates back many generations and operates in a downtown dotted with empty storefronts. So when he got wind in late 2020, the Dollar General was planning to open a store near the town, inside the town limits, that this fast-growing national discount chain was known for undercutting local grocers with its low prices. Mr. Huris vowed to prevent that outcome in Morgan. Armed with a petition signed by more than 100 people, Mr. Huris was direct in addressing the developer seeking zoning approval to build the Dollar General. We just don't want your store, Mr. Huris, a Republican recalled telling him. Morgan is part of a movement of municipalities across the United States that have pushed back against the dollar store industry's rapid growth during the pandemic. Since 2019, at least 75 communities have voted down proposed dollar stores, while roughly 50 have enacted moratoriums or other broad limits on dollar store development, according to a new report by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, an organization that is critical of corporate retailers and their impact on communities. Now, I mentioned that the mayor was a Republican, but I'll tell you, this crosses party lines in the States. When you look at all the different communities involved, some are Republican, some are Democrat, but they're united in this concern about the impact that dollar stores have had on their local business communities. Says Stacy Mitchell, who's the executive director or the co-executive director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, as divided as Americans are politically, there's remarkable agreement that too much of what passes as legitimate business models is, in fact, fundamentally destructive and unfair. Federal policymakers have let big corporations run amok. Cities and towns of all stripes have learned that if you want to protect your community, you have to do it yourself. So what impact has all this had on dollar stores? 
Not much, it seems. The dollar store's growth, this according once again to the New York Times, the dollar store's growth shows no sign of abating. With inflation still high, discount stores are attracting budget-conscious customers. In the end, financial analysts say consumer interest will be the biggest driver of whether the stores continue to spread. Sales are strong, said Shannon Warner, a partner in the consumer and retail practice of Kearney, a global strategy and management consulting firm. Consumers are voting for dollar stores with their wallets. So is that happening here too? In Canada, on this side of the border, are you seeing the growth of dollar stores? And is there a debate within your community about, is this a good thing or a bad thing? The impact that it's having on local stores is funny because, you know, 10 years ago, the issue was Walmart's. Well, Walmart's going to kill the local business industry. And that was certainly one of the issues here in, in the Stratford area when Walmart moved in. And there was some evidence of that. Well, I don't have the actual stats for my town or your town or communities across Canada. But I can see with my eyeballs that there are more dollar stores here now than there were five years ago. And I can see with my eyeballs that there's been an impact for a variety of reasons on the local business community with stores getting shuttered. Now, some of that was the pandemic, clearly. Driven by the pandemic, people didn't shop, stores went out of business, and restaurants, in some cases. So that's food for thought, as we say, and I'm sure some of you are going to write in about that. Now, here's my... Last story, my last end bit for today. I love this story. This is a story about the human drive to help. The human drive to do something that matters. The human drive to show heart. This one comes out of Philadelphia. And you'll excuse me if I tell you it was written on a Fox News site. (laughs) Philadelphia, there's the byline. Here's the story. A Philadelphia doctor took matters into his own hands, or more accurately, his own feet, to get an organ donation to a patient on time. Dr. Adam Bodson, a surgeon at Jefferson Hospital in Center City, was scrubbed and ready to perform a liver transplant last fall when he learned that the vehicle transporting the organ was stuck in traffic. To make the situation more difficult, roads surrounding the hospital were nearly impassable due to thousands of runners participating in the Philadelphia Marathon. We tried every which way to get them across, Dr. Bodson said. The driver talked to multiple police officers about potential access points. Unfortunately, despite that, the driver was unable to get across those lines. Still dressed in his white lab coat and scrubs, Dr. Badson ran for half a mile, weaving between marathon runners to retrieve the liver 
his 66-year-old patient desperately needed. I'd flagged down a police officer before I crossed the marathon, thankfully, who agreed to drive me back if I can get the liver, Dr. Bodson said. I think people are probably looking at me a little more odd carrying the box through. Charles Rowe, the patient, who was prepped and ready for surgery that day, had no idea, thank God, about Dr. Bodson making that run for it until the day after his successful operation. you imagine you're lying on the bed, you're all prepped, ready to slice open? And they say, well, actually, we have a problem. We don't have the liver. But don't worry, Dr. Bodson has just run across town to get it. It's blocked by traffic. But he'll get it, and he'll bring it back, and we'll pop it in there. No problem. Can you imagine if you're lying on the bed, on the gurney or whatever it is? Here's what Charles Rowe said. He's amazing. He's a really amazing doctor. He went beyond the call of duty. No kidding. I guess he has a cape on under that white jacket. <laughs> Patients doing great. Doctor's doing great. Doctor's a hero in his town. He should be. You know, when I hear about people saying the country's broken, and lots of different people say that, right? It's not broken. The country survives because people like that doctor in Philadelphia, and we have the same kind of people. The people who do the jobs that you don't normally hear about. This happened last fall. It's just coming out now. You could make you could take the the argument, oh, the country's broken because Philadelphia let its streets get tied up. Or you could say the country's not broken because there are guys like that doctor who say, I'm gonna save my patient, I don't care what it takes. And what it took in that case was that he ran halfway across town. So he could find the vehicle that had that <laughs> that liver in a box ready to go to the hospital to put in the patient's body. As I said, I love that story. It's a great story. And the images, are you can imagine. You can see it in your mind, right? You can see what happened. From that moment that the doctor in the OR said, where the hell's the liver? We're ready to do this. And somebody says, well, you know, it's, you know, it's stuck on the other side of town. The doctor could have just said, well, that's, that's that. I'm moving on to the next patient on whatever the, his crisis or her crisis is. But no. He said, out of the way, I'm running. Tell me where it is where they're stuck, and he got it. And thankfully, a police officer who said, you know, this is important. I'm going to help this guy. Got him back. There we go. Those are the people that make our communities work, no matter what the challenge is. All right. That wraps her up for today. Tomorrow, Smoke Mirrors the Truth. Bruce Anderson will be by. We'll talk, as you heard earlier, we'll talk about the events in Ottawa um, yesterday and a couple of other things, too, that I want to touch base on.
with Bruce. And that uh, tomorrow's edition is also on uh, our YouTube channel. Thursday, it's your turn and the random ranter. So get your letters in. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. And Friday, Chantal returns from her trek across Iceland for good talk with Bruce. That's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.